Chapter Five of *The Mountebank* by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Five. To realize Petit Patou in the British General of Brigade, we must turn to the manuscript mentioned at the beginning of this story. We meet him, a raw youth, standing one blazing summer day on the bridge of Avignon. He insists on this episode because, says he, the bridge is associated with important events in his life. It was not, needless to remark, the Pont d'Avignon of the gay old song, for the further arch of that was swept away by floods long ago, and it now remains a thing of pathetic uselessness. Three-quarters of the way across the Rhone might you go, and then you would come to abrupt nothingness, just the swirling river far below your arrested feet. It was the new suspension bridge, some three hundred yards further up, sadly inharmonious with the machiolated battlements of the city, and the austere mass rising above them, of the palace of the popes on the one side, and on the other the grey antiquity of the castle of Villeneuve, brooding like an ancient mother over its aged offspring, the clustering, sun-baked town. The joyous generation of the old bridge has long since passed away, but to the present generation the new bridge affords the same wonder and delight, for it entices like the old, from stifling streets to the haunts of Pan. There do you find leafy walks and dells of shade, and pathways by the great cool river leading to sequestered spots where you may sit and forget the clatter of flagstones and the stuffy apartment above them for which the rent is due, where the air of early June is perfumed by wild thyme and marjoram, and the far-flung sweetness of new-mown hay, and where the nightingales sing. So whenever it can, all Avignon turns out, as it has turned out for hundreds of years, on its to-and-fro adventure, across the Bridge of Promise. It was on a Sunday afternoon when young Lackaday stood there, leaning moodily over the parapet, regarding it not as a Bridge of Promise, but as a Bridge of Despair. He had fled from the dressing-room of the little music-hall just outside the city walls, which he shared with three others of the troop, from its horrible reek of escaping gas and drainage and grease-paint, and the hoarded human emanations of years, and had come here instinctively to breathe the pure air that swept down the broad stream. He had come for rest of mind and comfort of soul, but only found himself noisily alone amid an unsympathetic multitude. He had failed. He had learned it first from the apathy of the audience. He had learned it afterwards from the demeanour and the speech, far from apathetic, of the manager and leader of the troupe. They were a company of six, Les Merveilleurs, five jugglers, plate-spinners, eccentric musicians, ventriloquists, and one low comedian. Lackaday was the low comedian, his business to repeat in burlesque most of the performance of his fellow artists. It was his first engagement outside the Cirque Rocambeau, his first day with the troupe. Everything had gone badly. His enormous lean length put the show out of scale. The troupe, accustomed to the business of a smaller man, whose sudden illness caused the gap which Lackaday came from Paris to fill, resented the change, and gave him little help. They demanded impossibilities. Although they had rehearsed, and the rehearsals had been a sufficient nightmare of suffering, everybody had seemed to devote a ferocious malice to his humiliation. Where the professional juggler is accustomed to catch things at his hip, they threw them at his knees. They appeared to decide that his head should be on the level of his breast. The leading lady, Madame Croisson, wife of the manager, 
a compact person of five foot two, roundly declared that she could not play with him, and in his funniest act, dependent on her cooperation, she left him to be helplessly funny by himself. The tradition of the troupe required the comedian to be attired in a loud check suit, green necktie, and white felt bowler hat. On the podgy form of Lackaday's predecessor, it produced its comic effect. On the lank Lackaday, it was characterless. In consequence of all this, he'd been nervous, he'd missed cues, he'd fumbled when he ought to have been clear, and been clear when he ought comically to have fumbled. He had gone about his funny business with the air of a curate marrying his vicar to the object of his hopeless affections. And Croissant had devastatingly insulted him. What worm was in the head of Moignon, the parish musical agent, that he should send him such a monstrosity? He wasn't nom de dieu carrying about freaks at a fair. He wanted a comedian, and not a giant. No wonder the Cirque Rocambeau had come to grief, if it depended on such canaries as Lackaday. Didn't he know he was there to make the audience laugh? Not to give a representation of Monsieur Mounet Soule, elongated by the rack? Oh, mon petit, said he at last. Fait moi la camp which is a very vulgar way of insisting on a person's immediate retirement. Here is your week's salary. I gain by the proceeding. The barricage man will see us through. He has done so before. As for Moignon... Although Lackaday regarded Moignon as a sort of god dispensing fame and riches, enthroned on unassailable heights of power, he trembled at the awful destiny that awaited him. He would be cast, like Lucifer, from heaven. He would be stripped of authority. Croissant's invective against him was so terrible that Lackaday pitied him even more than he pitied himself. Yet there was himself to consider. As much used to apply to the fallen Moignon for an engagement as to the convent of the Daughters of Calvary. He and Moignon and their joint fortunes were sent hurtling down into the abyss. On the parapet of the Bridge of Despair leant young Lackaday, gazing unseeingly down into the Rhone. His sudden misfortune had been like the stunning blow of a sandbag. His brain still reeled. What had happened was incomprehensible. He knew his business. He could conceive no other. He had been trained to it since infancy. There was not a phase of Clown's work with which he was not familiar. He was a passable gymnast, an expert juggler, a trick musician, an accomplished conjurer. All that the Merveilleux Troupe Act required from him he had been doing successfully for years. Why, then, the failure? He blamed the check-suits, the ill-will of the company, the unreason of Madame Croissant. It did not occur to him that he had emerged from an old world into a new, that between the old circus public and the new music-hall public there was almost a generation's change of taste and critical demand. The Cirque Rocambeau had gone round without perceiving that the world had gone round too. It wondered why its triumphant glory had declined, and it could not take steps to adapt itself to the new conditions which it could not appreciate. Everyone grew old and tradition-bound in the Cirque Rocambeau, even the horses, until gradually it perished of senile decay. Andrew Lackaday, carrying on the traditions of his foster-father, the clown Ben Flint, had remained with it, principal clown, to the very end. Now and then rare passers through from the outer world, gymnasts down on their luck, glad to take a makeshift engagement while waiting for better things, had counselled him to leave the antiquated concern. But the Cirque Rocambeau had been the whole of his life, 
childhood, boyhood, young manhood. He was linked to it by the fibres of a generous nature. All those elderly anxious folk were his family. Many of the children, his contemporaries, trained in the circus, had flown heartlessly from the nest, and the elders had fatalistically lamented. Madame Rockenbourg, bowed, wizened, of uncanny age, yet forceful and valiant to the last, carrying on for the old husband, now lying paralysed in Paris, who had inherited the circus from his father misty years ago, would say to the young man, when one of these defections occurred, "'And you, André, you are not going to leave us? You have a fine position, and if you are dissatisfied, perhaps we can come to an arrangement. You are a child of the circus, and I love you like my own flesh and blood. We shall turn the corner yet. All that is necessary is faith, and a little youth.' and Andrew, a simple soul, who had been trained in the virtues of honour and loyalty by the brave Ben Flint, would repudiate with indignation the suggestion of any selfish desire to go abroad and seek adventure. At last, one afternoon, when the tent, a miserable gypsy thing, compared with the proud pavilion of the days of the glory of Billy the Pig, was pitched on the outskirts of a poor little town, they found Madame Rocambeau dead, in the canvas box office which she had occupied for fifty years. The heartbreaking receipts in front of her counted out into little piles of bronze and small silver. The end had come. The circus could not be sold as a going concern. It crumbled away. Somebody bought the old horses, heaven knows for what purpose. Somebody bought the antiquated harness and moth-eaten trappings. Somebody else bought the tents and fittings. But nobody bought the old, careworn human beings, riders and gymnasts and stable-hands, who crept away into the bright, free air of France, dazed and lost, like the prisoners released from the Bastille. It was not so long ago, long enough ago, however, for young Andrew Lacadet to have come perilously near the end of his savings in Paris, before the almighty Moignon, now curse-withered, but then vast and unctuous, reeking of fat food and diamonds and great cigars, had found him this engagement at Avignon. He had journeyed thither full of the radiant confidence of twenty. He stood on the bridge, overwhelmed by the despair whose Tartarian blackness only twenty can experience. Not a gleam anywhere of hope. His humiliation was absolute. The monarchal Coinson had not even given him an opportunity of redeeming his failure. He had been paid to go away. The disgusting yet necessary price of his shame rattled in his pockets. Tonight the baggage-man would play his part, a being once presumably trained, yet sunk so low in incompetence that he was glad to earn his livelihood as baggage-man. And he, Andrew Lackaday, was judged more incompetent even than this degraded outcast. Why? How could it be? What was the reason? He dug his nails into his burning temples. The summer sun beat down on him, and set a glitter the currents in the Rhone. The ceaseless, laughing stream of citizens passed him by. Presently, youth's need of action brought him half unconsciously to an erect position. He glanced duly this way and that, and then slowly moved along the bridge towards the Villeneuve Blank. Girls, bareheaded, arm in arm, looked up at him and laughed. He was so long and lean and comical with his ugly, lugubrious face and the little straw hat perched on top of his bushy, carroty pole. Mind, being used to derision, in happier days he valued it, for the laugh would be accompanied by a nudge and a voila Auguste. He took it as a tribute. 
It was fame. Now he was so deeply sunk in his black mood that he scarcely heeded. He walked on to the end of the bridge and turned down the dusty pathway by the bank. Suddenly he became aware of sounds of music and revelry, and a few yards further on he came to a broad dell shaded by plane trees and set out as a restaurant garden, with rude tables and benches, filled with good-humoured, thirsty folk. On one side a weather-beaten wooden chalet, having the proud title of Restaurant du Rhône, served apparently but to house the supply of drinks which nondescript men and sturdy, bare-haired maidens carried incessantly on trays to the waiting tables. On the dusty midway space, the garden boasted no blade of grass, couples danced to the strains of a wheezing hurdy-gurdy, played by a white-bearded ancient, who at the end of each tune refreshed himself with a draught from a chope of beer on the ground by his side, while a tiny anemic girl went round gathering sous in a shell. When the music stopped, you could hear the whir and the click of the bowls in an adjoining dusty and ragged alley, and the harsh, excited cries of the players. During these intervals, the serving people, in an absent way, would scatter an occasional carafe full of water on the dancing floor to lay the dust. Young Lacadet hung hesitatingly on the outskirts, under the wooden archway that was at once the entrance and the signboard. The music had ended. The tables were packed. He felt very thirsty, and longed to enter and drink some of the beer which looked so cool in the long glasses, surmounted by its half-inch of white froth, inviting as sea-foam. Shyness held him. These prosperous, carefree bourgeois, almost indistinguishable one from the other by racial characteristics, and himself a tragic failure in life and physically unique among men, were worlds apart. It had never occurred to him before that he could find himself anywhere in France where the people were not his people. He felt heartbrokenly alien. Presently the hurdy-gurdy started the ghostly tinkling of the Il Baccio waltz, and the ingenuous couples of Avignon rose and began to dance. The thirst-driven lacadet plucked up courage and strode to a deserted wooden table. He ordered beer. It was brought. He sipped luxuriously. One tells one's thirst to be patient when one has to think of one's sou. He was halfway through when two girls, young and flushed from dancing together, flung themselves down on the opposite bench, the table between. "'We don't disturb you, monsieur?' He raised his hat politely. "'By no means, mesdemoiselles.' One of them, with a quick gesture, took up from the table a forgotten newspaper, and began to fan herself and her companion, to the accompaniment of giggling and chatter about the heat. They were very young. They ordered grenadine syrup and eau de seltz. Andrew Dacaday stared dismally beyond them at the dancers. In the happy, perspiring girls in front of him he took no interest, for all their youth and comeliness and obviously frank approachability. He saw nothing but the fury-inflamed face of Coinson, and heard nothing but the rasping voice telling him that it was cheaper to pay him his week's salary than to allow him to appear again. A formal le camp! Why hadn't he taken Coinson by the neck then and there with his long, strong fingers and strangled him? Coinson would have had the chance of a rabbit. He had the strength of a dozen Coinson. He trained to perfection with muscle-like dried bull sinews. He could split an apple between arm and forearm in the hollow of his elbow. Why shouldn't he go back and break Coinson's neck? No man alive had the right to tell him to fool a camp. "'You don't seem very gay,' said a laughing voice. With a start, he recovered consciousness of immediate surroundings. Instead of two girls opposite, there was only one. 
Vaguely he remembered that a man had come up. Uh, tour de vise, mademoiselle. Je vis bien. And one of the girls had gone, leaving her just sipping grenadine syrup and seltzer water. But it had been like some flitting unreality of a dream. At his blinking recovery, the remaining girl laughed again. You look like a somnambulist. He replied, I beg pardon, mademoiselle, but I was absorbed in my reflections. Black ones, huh? They have made you little infidelities? He frowned. They? Who do you mean, they? A jolly garçon is not absorbed in his reflections. She mimicked his tone. Unless there is the finger of a petite femme to stir them round and darken them. Mademoiselle, said he seriously, you are quite mistaken. There's not a woman in the world against whom I have the slightest grudge. It was a matter of love, and Madame Coinson's hostility did not count. Word of honour, he added, looking into the smiling, ironical face. Love had entered very little into his serious scheme of life. He'd had his entanglements, of course. There was Francine Dumesnil, who had fluttered into the Cirque Rocambeau as a slackwire artist, and, after making him vows of undying affection, had eloped a week afterwards with Hans Peterson, the only man left who could stand on the bare back of a horse that was not thick with resin. But the heart of Andrew Lacadet had nothing to do with the heart of Francine Dumesnil. He had agreed with the aged Madame Rocambeau. Saltrip, both of them. If it had been chagrin d'amour, sorrow of love, mademoiselle, said he, I should not have been so insensible to the presence of two such charming young ladies. We are polite, all the same, she remarked approvingly. She sipped her grenadine. Having nothing further to say, he sipped his beer. Presently, she said, I saw you this afternoon at the Boite. He looked at her with a touch of interest. No one would allude to the music hall as the box, except a fellow professional engaged there. "'You too?' he asked. She nodded. She belonged to a troop of dancing girls. As they were the first number, they got away early. She and her friend had gone for a walk and found this restaurant. It was gay, wasn't it? He said soberly, "'You were dancing at rehearsal this morning. You've danced at the music hall this afternoon. You'll be dancing again this evening.' "'Why do you dance here?' "'One can only be young once,' she replied. "'How old are you?' Seventeen. And you?' Twenty-two. She would have given him thirty, she said. He looked so serious. And he, regarding her more narrowly, would have given her fifteen. She was very young, slight, scarcely formed, yet her movements were lithe and complete like those of a young lizard. She had laughing, black eyes, and a fresh mouth set in a thin, dark face that might one day grow haggard or coarse, according to her physical development, but was now full with the devil's beauty of youth. A common type, one that would not arrest masculine eyes as she passed by. Dozens of the girls here round about might have called her sister. She was dressed with cheap neatness, the soiled white wing of a bird in her black hat being the only touch of bravura. She spoke with the rich accent of the South. "'You are of the Midi?' he said. "'Yes. She came from Marseille.' Ingenuously chattering, she gave him her family history. In the meanwhile, her companions and her partner, having finished their dance, had retired to a sequestered corner of the restaurant, leaving the pair here to themselves. Lacadet learned that her name was Elodie Figasso. Her father was dead. 
her mother was a dressmaker, in which business she too had made her apprenticeship. An elderly man, a huissier, one of those people who go about with a tricolour rosetted cocked hat, and steel buttons, and canvas trousers, and a leather satchel chained to their waist, had lately diverted from Elodie the full tide of maternal affection. As she hated the huissier, a vulgar man who thought of nothing but the good things that the verve Figasso could put into his stomach, and as her besotted mother starved them both in order to fulfil the huissier's demands, and as she derived no compensating joy from her dressmaking, she had found, thanks to a friend, a position as figurante in a Marseille revue, and voilà, there she was, free, independent, and since she had talent and application, was now earning her six francs a day. She finished her grenadine. Then, with a swift movement, she caught a passing serving-maid, and slipped into her hand the money for her companion's scarcely tasted drink, and her own. Instantly Andrew protested, Mademoiselle must allow him to have the pleasure. But no, never in life she had not intruded on his table to have free drinks. As for the consummation of the feather-headed Margot, from Margot herself would she get reimbursement. "'But yet, mademoiselle,' said he, "'you make me ashamed. You must still be thirsty, like myself.' "'Sana vous gênerez pas?' She asked the question with such a little air of serious solicitude that he laughed for the first time. Would it upset his budget, involve the sacrifice of a tram-ride or a packet of tobacco, if he spent a few sous on more syrup for her delectation? And yet the delicacy of her motive appealed to him. Here was a little creature, very honest, very much of the people, very proud, very conscientious. "'On the contrary, mademoiselle,' said he, "'I shall feel that you do me an honour. "'It is not to be refused,' said she politely, and the serving-maid was dispatched for more beer and syrup. "'I waited to see your turn,' she said after a while. "'Ah!' he sighed. She glanced at him swiftly. "'It does not please you that I should talk about it?' "'Not very much.' said he. "'But I find you admirable,' she declared. "'Much better than an espèce de poule mouillé, his name, who played last week. Oh, a wet hen, he was more like a drowned duck. So when I heard a comedian from Paris was coming, I said, "'I must wait.' And Margot and I waited in the wings. And we laughed. Oh, yes, we laughed. "'It's more than the audience did,' said the miserable Andrew. "'The audience of Avignon. she never played to such an audience in her life.' They were notorious, these people, all over France. They were so stupid that before they would laugh you had to, to tell them a thing was funny, and then they were so suspicious that they wouldn't laugh for fear of being deceived. All of which, of course, is a libel on the hearty folk of Avignon. But Elodie was from Marseilles, which naturally had a poor opinion of the other towns of Provence. She also lied for the comforting of Lacadet. "'They are so unsympathetic,' said he, "'that I shall not play any more.' She knitted her young brow. "'What do you mean?' "'I mean that I play neither to-night, nor to-morrow night, nor ever again. "'To-morrow I return to Paris.' She regarded him, awe-stricken. "'You throw up an engagement, just like that, because the audience doesn't laugh?' She had heard vague fairy-tales of pampered opera-singers acting with such Olympian independence, but never a music-hall artist on tour. He must be very rich and powerful. Lacadet read the thought behind the wide-open eyes. "'Not quite like that,' he admitted honestly. "'It did not altogether depend on myself. You see, the patron found that the audience didn't laugh, 
The patron found that my long body spoiled her act, and so I go to Paris tomorrow. She rose from the depths of envying wonder to the heights of pity. She flashed indignation at the abominable treatment he had received from the Coinçons. She scorned them with her to contempt. What right had that tortoise of a Madame Coinçon to put on airs? She'd seen better juggling in a booth at a fair. Her championship warmed Andrew's heart, and he began to feel less lonely in a dismal and unappreciative world. Longing for further healing of an artist's wounded vanity, he said, "'Tell me frankly, you did see something to admire in my performance?' "'Haven't I always said so? Tiens, would you like me to tell you something? All my life I have loved Auguste in a circus. You know Auguste, the clown? Well, you reminded me of Auguste, and I laughed. Until lately I was Auguste, in the Cirque Rocambeau.' She clapped her hands. "'But I have seen you there, when I was quite little, three, four years ago, at Marseille.' Four years,' said Andrew, looking into the dark, backward and abysm of time. "'Yes, I remember you well now. We're old friends.' "'I hope you'll allow me to continue the friendship,' said Andrew. They talked after the way of youth. He narrated his uneventful history. She added details to the previous sketch of her own career. The afternoon drew to a close. The restaurant garden emptied. The good folks of Avignon returned dinnerwards across the bridge. They looked for Margot, but Margot had disappeared— presumably with her new acquaintance. Elodie sniffed in a superior manner. If Margot didn't take care, she would be badly caught one of these days. For herself, no, she had too much character. She wouldn't walk about the streets with a young man she had only known for five minutes. She told Andrew so very seriously as they strolled over the bridge, arm in arm. They parted, arranging to meet at ten o'clock when she was free from the music hall at the Café des Négociants, or the Place de l'Hôtel de Ville. Andrew, shrinking from the table d'hôte in the mangy hotel in a narrow back street where the Movio troupe had their crowded being, dined at a cheap restaurant near the railway station, and filled in the evening with aimless wandering up and down the thronged Avenue de la Gare. Once he turned off into the quiet, moonlit square, dominated by the cathedral and the walls and towers of the Palace of the Popes. The austere beauty of it said nothing to him, it did not bring calm to a fevered spirit. On the contrary, it depressed a spirit longing for a little fever. So he went back to the broad, gay avenue where all Avignon was taking the air. A girl's sympathy had reconciled him with his kind. She came, tripping up to him, almost on the stroke of ten, as he sat on the outside edge of the café terrace, awaiting her. The reconciliation was complete. Like most of the young men there, he too had his maid. They met as if they had known each other for years. She was full of an evil fellow, en gros type, with a roll of fat at the back of his neck and a great diamond ring which flashed in the moonlight, who had waited for her at the stage door and walked by her side, pestering her with his attentions. "'And do you know how I got rid of him?' I said, "'Monsieur, I can't walk with you through the streets on account of my comrades. But I swear to you that you will find me at the Café des Négociants at a quarter past ten. "'And so I made my escape. "'Look,' said she excitedly, gripping Andrew's arm, "'here he is.' "'She met the eyes of the gross type "'with the roll of fat and the diamond ring, "'who halted somewhat uncertainly in front of the café. "'Whereupon Andrew rose to his long height of six feet four, "'and, glaring at the offender, "'put him to the flight of over-elaborated unconcern. 
Elodie was delighted. "'You could have eaten him up alive, n'est-ce pas, André?' And Andrew felt the thrill of the successful squire of dames. For the rest of the evening there was no longer any monsieur or mademoiselle. It was André and Elodie. Yes, he would write to her from Paris, telling her of his fortunes, and she too would write. The agence Magnon would always find him. It is parenthetically to be noted how his afternoon fears of the impermanence of the agence Magnon had vanished. Time flew pleasantly. She seemed to have set herself, her youth and her femininity, to the task of evoking the wide baby-smile on his good-natured, though dismal, face. It was only on their homeward way, after midnight, that she mentioned the boile. There had been discussions. Some had said this, and some had said that. There had been partisans of the Croissant and partisans of André. There was subject-matter for one of the pretty quarrels dear to music-hall folk. But Elodie summed up the whole matter with her air of precocious wisdom, a wisdom gained in the streets and sewing-rooms and café-concerts of Marseille. "'What you do is excellent, mon cher, but it is vieux jeu. The circus is not the musical. You must be original.' As originality was banned from the circus tradition, he stood still in the narrow, quiet street, and gasped. "'Original?' "'You are so long and thin,' she said. "'That has always been against me. It was against me to-day.' "'But you could make it so droll,' she declared. "'And there will be no one else like you. "'But you must be by yourself, not with a troupe like the Merveilleux. "'Tiens!' She caught him by the lapels of his jacket, and a passer-by might have surmised a pleading stage in a lover's discussion. "'I have heard there is a little man in London, oh, so little, et pas de tout joli.' "'I know,' said Andrew, "'but he is a great artist.' "'And so are you,' she retorted. "'But as this little man gets all the profit he can out of his little list, "'it was La Grosse Leonie, the Brune, number three, you know. Ah, "'But you haven't seen us. "'Anyhow, she has been in London and was telling me about him this evening. "'All that nature has endowed him with, he exaggerates. "'Eh bien, why couldn't you do the same?' "'The street was badly lit with gas, "'but still he could see the flash in her dark eyes.' He drew himself up, and laid both his hands on her thin shoulders. "'My little Elodie,' said he, and by the dim gaslight she could see the flash of his teeth revealed by his wide smile. "'My little Elodie, you have genius. You have given me an idea that may make my fortune. What can I give you in return?' "'If you wanted to show me that you are not ungrateful, you might kiss me,' said Elodie. End of chapter 5